Hi, I'm Tyler Hay, CEO of Evergreen GovCal, and you're listening to Deep Dive on the Evergreen Exchange. For the next 45 minutes, I chat with Kellen Carter, one of the founders of Fuse, a Seattle area venture capital firm. Evergreen served as one of the founding investors in their inaugural fund, which launched in quarter two of 2020. Kellen Carter and I discuss a range of topics related to venture capital and what hopefully translates into engaging content for our listeners. Hope you enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Kellen Carter of Views, a venture capital firm located here in Bellevue. Kellen, thanks for joining us. Go ahead and introduce yourself and tell people who they're listening to a little bit about your background. Well, first of all, Tyler, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for all your incredible support over the last year. Uh, it's been really a, a pleasure to work with you and the entire Evergreen team. Uh, by way of background, uh, I'm one of the founders of Fuse alongside my, my co-general partners, Cameron Bormand and Brendan Wales. And uh, we raised a fund one, a $170 million fund one that is completely dedicated to backing the best-in-class software companies being built here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, we're, we're going to uh, maybe dive into that a little bit later in the episode, but Maybe let's start by thinking about the listener who who maybe isn't um, as savvy when it comes to venture capital investing, and let's kind of start at a high level and, and describe what is venture capital. I mean, I think most people have heard the term, but I think hearing it from kind of the horse's mouth, someone that lives it and breathes it, just describe it in you know plain English. Yeah, it's it's really quite simple. We go raise a pool of money to then invest in 25 to 30 software companies. And if you think about a venture capital firm, it's all about three things, access, seeing the investment, uh, winning, uh, great companies have multiple options and we want Fuse to be the only option. And then once you're invested in a company, it's about building. You think about everyone used Facebook uh, back in the day when it was just a friend's network. Look out today, it's worth over a trillion dollars. But at one point, it was just an idea in a dorm room with a few people uh, building a college networking application. And fast forward today, it's a multi hundred billion, over a trillion dollar market cap company. And it took venture capital to help that company get to where it is now. Thanks, Kellen. So I, I love the, the two guys in a dorm room analogy, because I think that a lot of people um, do think that it's your job to go around town and look for people in dorm rooms, or maybe it's it's two guys or gals in their parents' garage drinking gallons of Mountain Dew until five in the morning writing software codes. Is that really who you're going out and looking for? Is it really, you know, is that what it's like being, you know, uh, someone that's hunting these types of startups? Or is it a, is, is that a little bit of a dramatized exaggeration? Well, the show Silicon Valley does a great job of exaggerating the day-to-day job of a VC. Uh, but you never know where the great entrepreneur might come from next. And so it's our job to always be putting ourselves as venture capitalists to be in front of a world-class, relentless entrepreneurs. And I remember when Cameron joined me uh, uh, at Ignition, our predecessor firm before Fuse, and I told him, I said, you could spend seven days a week, uh, 365, trying to track down the very best entrepreneurs. But if you're happen to be in a restaurant or bar and you meet a great company and we end up investing, that's a better quarter than uh, working 365. Uh, so you just never know where the great entrepreneurs will come from, but you always got to be putting yourself in a position to see and then build those relationships and then back those companies. So you and Cameron both had um, fantastic early success at um, Ignition Partners prior to kind of forging out on your own and, and starting Fuse. 
Talk a little bit about your time there and, and where you guys had some success and things that you learned along the way. It was a really simple decision to, to join Ignition. And before Ignition, I started my career in doing software technology mergers and acquisitions, uh, investment banking in the Bay Area. And this was in the 2011 to 2013 timeframe. But it was really clear that Seattle was one of the most exciting software ecosystems and, and quickly uh, fastest growing ecosystem in the world uh, with the rise of Amazon, the resurgence of Microsoft, and then a number of other companies. And then it was really came down to being a bet on the people. And those people were the Ignition partners, particularly a guy named John Connors, who uh, hired me, then uh, worked in, and helped me hire Cameron. And uh, we wanted, it was really simple, bet on the market of Seattle and learn as much as you can from someone of his, his experience as an investor and also an operator, having been a CFO of Microsoft and running the worldwide enterprise division there. Uh, when you have a mentor like John, every single day you are learning at an accelerated rate and you're seeing interesting companies, you're working to build interesting companies, uh, and you're learning what greatness looks like. And we were really lucky to, and fortunate to be part of uh, some of the iconic companies getting built here in Seattle, including Carbon Robotics uh, and including Isertus, which is, uh, will be one of Ignition's uh, most successful companies uh, that we ever invested in. And so seeing uh, the rise of those companies, being part of that network, being part of uh, learning from John's mentorship, it's hard to quantify the impact that it had on Cameron and myself. And, and just for people that are listening that might be wondering, is Ignition still going? Did you split off from them? Maybe give a little color to how that, how that took place. Ignition had a remarkable two-decade run backing some of the region's iconic software companies, I sort of, I just mentioned, but also DocuSign and a number of others. Uh, fast forward to 2019, the senior partners just made the collective decision that they weren't going to pursue raising a Fund 7. Uh, which was the fork in the road for Cameron and I to split off uh, with a lot of the Ignition Partners uh, support uh, to start Fuse. And Fuse uh, is a play on words uh, with the, the name Ignition. And uh, we were lucky to have the blessing and the support of the entire Ignition team and partners. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll pause for a second here and, and bring listeners up to speed on sort of how Evergreen and Fuse got connected. And John Connors is certainly a part of that. Um, one of our clients, uh, Kevin Turner, was um, the COO of Microsoft. I don't believe that um, they overlap, John and him. I'm not sure about that. But he um, obviously is a heavyweight in the, the tech world. And he'd been telling us, you know, hey, look, um, Evergreen really needs to participate in the growing Seattle venture capital ecosystem. There's great ideas here. And, he, you know, obviously being from Microsoft and a tech background, this type of thing really interested him. And we had agreed, um, this had, this is maybe three or four years ago, he started kind of, you know, dripping on us, telling us to do this. And we, we were kind of, we were, we were agreeing, but we were in the ready, aim, 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 and not ready to fire phase, um, so to speak. And, you know, as timing would have it, you could call it bad luck or good luck, basically in the, the peak of the the, the COVID uh, pandemic when it was really first breaking out and, you know, the world was turned upside down. We got a call from him saying John Connors has these guys that are that are leaving his firm in a very amicable way and they're going off on their own and they're starting a um, their own firm and you guys really need to talk to them. And so I called John and and talked with John, and, and he obviously was very, very complimentary of you 
and Cameron, and he said, you know, you're one of the things that resonates with me is he said, you're getting guys that are doing their first fund, which generally, which is a good thing because they're incredibly hungry, they're incredibly motivated, but they don't have first fund experience. You know, they're seasoned, they've been doing this, um, they've learned it from their time at Ignition. So, you know, if you're if you're a firm that's, you know, looking to to make this move, this is a great opportunity. And so despite the fact that we were in the middle of covid and despite the fact that we agreed to do this in, in a fairly abbreviated um, time frame and and the idea of raising our first fund um, when you couldn't even sit down face to face and meet people and introduce people and shake hands um was a, a crazy endeavor at the time, um, but we went for it and clients, frankly, were ecstatic. I think in a lot of ways, um, people that invested were, were, I don't know if they were waiting for us to do this, but I think that there is a palpable sense of people that live in this region that something unique is happening here from, you know, in the technology scene. And when we said, you know, we said, hey, look, is Seattle Silicon Valley in terms of ideas? No. But are there great companies here that are going to spin out tons of, of talented people that are going to want to pursue their own companies and create startups and do all those things? Absolutely. And so, you know, instead of letting all the Silicon Valley investors basically get rich off the good ideas here locally, let's let's form a fund and let's invest and let's, you know, let's ride the wave of success of, of the good ideas here. And, and frankly, it went better than we thought. It, it was um, easier. It was certainly stressful and certainly time-consuming um, couple of weeks as, as we launched it. But that's sort of um, the background. And then we obviously got introduced to you, um, met you, and and then we, we went ahead and, and made, you know, a pretty sizable investment in your guys' fund. And so maybe talk a little bit about how that's gone. Where are you guys in the the process of you know investing your fund uh, is it all invested i know these answers but i think tell people yeah. where you are in, in your evolution in terms of getting fund one um invested yeah so first of all it was amazing to get you all involved and you know you're you're, you're shrewd negotiators but you've been remarkable uh supportive partners to all of us here at fuse on helping us win and support the the companies that we're investing in here in seattle you know, as of today, we've deployed over a third of the fund. We've made 11 investments, many of them which are still relatively in stealth mode, and we're already seeing several of our first markups. The only two investments we made in 2020 have been marked up significantly by tier one investors in the Valley, actually. But it was our okay, job to be on, there first. I, I, I hate to do, I hate interrupting on the podcast, but I said that I would try to make this digestible for the people that maybe aren't as familiar with this. What does a markup mean? Um, when when you when you say that we invested at a certain price uh, at the point in time in the case of these two investments it was of October in October of 2020 fast forward to today a new investor has came in and valued each of these companies significantly higher uh, than we valued them back valued them back in October of 2020 and therefore our our investment in each of those companies is now worth significantly more significantly right. more on paper. And it's a step in the right direction in the form of delivering not just markups, but cash back to all of our investors. Thank you. And, you know, you said something earlier that I think I certainly didn't appreciate this at the outset, 
But, you know, you know, you sort of get this idea that you're a venture capital firm. You raise a pool of money. You go out and find your target investments, your startup companies that you want to back. And then I sort of was under the impression of once you once you, you know, make, place those bets, so to speak, that it's just a, it's just wait and see and, and see what happens at the end. But that's really maybe a misrepresentation or an oversimplification of the role you continue to play with these these um, companies that you invest in. Would you agree? Very much so. And if, if you were a firm that was just money, you should probably call yourself just capital. Here <laughs> at Fuse, uh, if you're really early, at the very earliest stage of starting a company, it's your job essentially to find product market fit where the customers have uh, validated the product offering, they're finding value in it. Uh, once you do that as a company, that's where Fuse can really add value. And there's a, uh, there's, there's a way that we add value in a couple ways. First of all, we take the fiduciary and the governance responsibility of being on the board of these companies very, very seriously and helping guide them to becoming uh, significantly larger companies. The second piece is our LP, communi LP community that we've been able to establish over the last 18 months is second to none in the world. Uh, we like to say here at Fuse that we have the urgency and the network, or, or the stability and the network of an Ignition Fund 7, but the urgency and need to make this work of a Fuse Fund 1. And so we lean heavily on our limited partners, our investors in the fund, to support the companies that we have already invested in. And it's a really unique situation where you make one hire or two hires or help with one or two customers, you dramatically change the trajectory of that company and the likelihood for success. And I think that's a very attractive value proposition for any exciting company and product getting built here in Seattle. Maybe give some concrete examples. You don't have to name names, but how you've seen that done in the past where, where the venture capital firm makes an investment into a young and growing company. And then they, they add, you, you know, you say they add value, but be specific about what types of, you know, key steps or, or actions can they take to actually then increase the value in the business that they just invested in? So I'll, I will use our first example, an investment we made. We led the Series A in a company called Owl. And it was a little bit of an experiment at the time, but we knew we had this captive, amazing set of, of limited partners. So we sent out an email highlighting the why we invested, what we saw in the company and the team, and then really how lim the limited partner community can add value, how they can help. And the number of responses and engagement from the community was off the charts. I got several phone calls from CFOs at public companies saying, when can I talk to them? I need help. I have a multi-million dollar a year problem of people saying they can't work, essentially fraud. And what OWL does just for context is they help companies identify fraudulent insurance claims, starting with disability, the PNC, and a number of other categories. Uh, but we had the response rate from our limited partners of wanting to talk to this company based on the acute pain point that they have. Similarly with OWL, we have actually placed three limited partners into that company. One is a, a formal go-to-market advisor, the chief business officer, Domo J. Hegler. We've also added the former CFO of Icertis, Dan Kaltenbach, as the CFO of OWL. And then lastly, we added a world-class customer success leader. Uh, he helped scale outreach, one of the region's leading software companies, from 10 to over 100 million of revenue. He then joined as the head of customer su success at OWL. So you see the engagement both from customer interest and then also adding 
uh, best in class domain expertise and talent to the company is a huge needle mover and is a big driver of why they're valued significantly more than when we invested a year ago. Great. And and I think Al's is certainly a cool story and a cool startup. You know, we we update our fund investors um, and when they read about Owl, it was, you know, we help, you know, we help detect fraud. And so they kind of, people were, they kind of get it, you know, but how do they help? It doesn't really make sense. And so the story that I give is, or that, that I tell, and you can either borrow this or, or delete it, but I, I tell the story of you, an employee is filing for disability with their employer. And meanwhile, they're on Instagram posting pictures of them kite surfing. And yeah. so... So obviously there are ways that technology can help um, companies like that. And I think that's one really cool um, example, but <clears throat> maybe let's, let's transition. And I do think it is super powerful. What you said is it, it is amazing to think that, you know, venture capital, and it, it makes sense, right? You know, you invest money in a company, but then you go and say, I can help you in other ways. I can help you find customers because our fund investors could be customers or we can help you. Um, find talent to recruit to the startup, right? That's a hard thing to do. Finding talent, almost every startup has, you know, difficulty finding people. So I think it's great how you guys leverage your investor base to to make, I mean, you're really, it's you know, you bet on the horse and then you help you help the horse run faster, which I think is is pretty cool. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, for a lot of people that are probably going to listen to this, not, not all, but most of them or a lot of them are based in either Seattle um, or Portland uh, and, and maybe some in the Bay Area. Maybe talk a little bit about the relationship. You know, Silicon Valley is sort of the mecca of both uh, or perceived at least as the as the mecca of capital for startups, as well as the idea for startups. And so maybe as somebody who's betting on the Seattle or the Pacific Northwest scene, Maybe talk a little bit about how you feel when you when you hear things like, you know, the Mecca is Silicon Valley and, and Seattle is is maybe the little brother. <laughs> uh, we do hear that. But I always ask people, who are the most important enterprise software companies in the world? The answer is simple. It's Microsoft and Amazon. And you look at this market, you look at the magnet of talent just with those two companies, let alone outreach, I certis. Google Clouds here in Seattle, Oracle Clouds, Facebook's back end, Convoy, you name it. The magnet of talent from these companies is just truly remarkable. What hasn't kept up in the Pacific Northwest and is one of the only regions probably in the world what, where, where capital hasn't kept up. And the disparity between opportunities and capital represents probably one of the most unique opportunities for a local firm focused on this area to find back and build uh, the next generation of world-class companies. So why, you know, why is that? Why, why is so much of the capital still um, that's deployed really in, into startups all over the country? Why is it so concentrated in Silicon Valley? I think there's a false assumption that Silicon Valley investors can stay close to the metal in Seattle because it's only a two-hour flight away. And the number of times where I've had someone be flying up from the Valley to Seattle they tell me what companies uh, they're planning to meet with, and we kind of get a chuckle because we met with them three, four, five weeks earlier and put ourselves in the position to make the decision before they, the said Valley firm, ever had an opportunity to even meet the company. And that's the discipline that we have to maintain here at Fuse is making sure that 
we are seeing every single company that's getting started here before the two-hour flight of them flying to the bay or vice versa of the investor flying up here. Another thing that we, you know, to this point that we talked about early on in, in sort of us analyzing the, you know, and considering the investment with Fuse was how I thought, you know, in, in a lot of ways venture would work, which is you have that pool of money and, you know, you hear about this really cool company. So it's easy. You hear about a cool company, you have a pool of money, you just call up that guy and say, hey, I heard you're doing something cool. We want to put some money in. Who's going to say no to you? I thought it was as simple as that. And and really, again, it's an oversimplification or, or even just an accurate way to describe uh, that part of the process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Also a very false assumption that you sit back okay, and have your cocktail. stop saying false assumption. We <laughs> uh, that you have your cocktail at 3 p.m. and then in comes an idea. You decide whether or not you want to throw some money at it. That's not how it works. When you have a great entrepreneur with a really big idea, the amount of money and firms that come after that company can be endless. And the last thing you ever want is your term sheet getting compared side by side against other firms. You want to be there first. You want to be the only option. And it takes pounding the pavement in a relentless manner to make sure you're always there first. A funny story is, um, you know, we passed on this company while we were at Ignition. Uh, but Cameron made a, uh, uh, kept a great relationship with the CEO, a company that we just announced called Wellstead Labs that we're honored to be p- business partners with. Uh, when it came time for them to raise their Series A, the traction was off the charts. The team is phenomenal. Uh, they had options. People were trying to chase this company down to put money into it. Cameron went and posted up at a Starbucks near the CEO's house for seven hours on a Saturday with a bottle of champagne and the term sheet in hand, took a photo of it, sent it to the CEO and said, I am not leaving. I am not leaving this area or the Starbucks until this term sheet is signed. Seven hours go by. I think he started to get a little bit worried, but he gets a call from Matt, the CEO. Uh, next thing I know, I'm at a dinner and I get a photo of them with the glasses of champagne and the term sheet signed. And that's the kind of hustle uh, that it takes to be part of these really exciting companies that are executing well. That does sound like a episode of Silicon Valley. <laughs> this was a Saturday, mind you. <laughs> That's a cool story. Tell you know that does bring it, it does lead to a question that you know I think people will probably be wondering, which is, okay, the good ideas in this town, the good startups, they have more venture firms chasing them than they need. How do you, you know, being a regional firm from Seattle with obviously, you know, some name reputation, but not the same name reputation as one of you know the big dogs coming in from Silicon Valley who you know they can just slap their name their business card on the table and say do you want our money you know i mean how do you differentiate and compete with the 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 big dogs who are they how do you how do you view them as competition talk a little bit about the competitive dynamic and is uh, it always gr- competitive is it always competitive does it ever go from being competitive to collaborative it's both we like to say competition or frenemies uh, with every other venture firm there is. Um, but we always want to be in the position to be able to make the decision, not reacting to somebody else's decision. So again, going back to the three core tenets of venture access, step one, here we're talking about winning and then it's building. As part of the winning piece, it's our job to be there first. It's our job to make sure that uh, if we're making a decision to lean in, we are the only choice. And in doing so, we unleash the network of RLP community. A number of your clients have gotten calls 
uh, and we've made asks to proactively out, uh, make the outreach uh, to these companies, really showing the power and the network of the LP community. And if, if you want to hire a CFO, Fuse can help. If you want to help sell to one of the iconic brands here, Fuse can help. If you want a relationship with Microsoft or Amazon, Fuse can help. And so when they see it in action, it's a very, like I said earlier, a very attractive value prop when the decision time for the CEOs and these early stage companies. Do, you know, I'm sure though that, that some of these startups um, here locally get enamored with, I'm going to be backed by Andreessen Horowitz, right? I mean, that's like the gold, the you know, the gold stamp on my company. And, and is that, is that really, is that a real thing? Like you, battle that? And if so, how do you, you know, I understand that you say that we lean on our network, but I'm, I am assuming that that's a, a real thing that these people feel like. Potentially, but I think many of the CEOs and the ones that uh, we've gotten involved with that are tremendously ambitious really see firsthand uh, the relentlessness that we bring to surround these company with everything we got. And, um, you know, we have a number of LPs that are high impact business leaders here it's got to work and it's palpable to these companies when we are in a competitive situation that it is all hands on deck. We won't let these CEOs out of the room and whatever creative means it takes to be part of a company that we're excited to partner with. We do. Sure. I mean, it certainly makes sense. I mean, you know, as much as it might feel appealing to be, you know, to receive an investment from Andreessen Horowitz, you know, being a local firm here in Seattle, you might start to wonder how, you know, how greater resources are they really going to give to me? How much attention and support are they really going to lend? You know, I'm one of, you know, I'm a, so to speak, I'm a small fish in a giant pond. It's a very fair uh, assumption there. Um, and there's, it's way different of going on a walk or having a dinner or getting together face to face versus a really busy general partner at a big firm in the Bay Area that has a small piece uh, in the company relative to their fund size that dials right. in and is a silent board member. What do you want as an entrepreneur? Do you want someone that's going to spend the time where uh, the investment that's getting made out of Fuse is a, a significant portion of, of our time and our, our entire firm's time, but also a relatively high percentage of our fund? And I think right. that a lot of CEOs really understand that dynamic. That having local, having a local network, having the support of an investor locally uh, can really compound on what they're trying to build. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, you know, I think that when when the term, I'm going to throw some kind of more maybe philosophical or more curious questions your way, which is when you hear the the term venture capital, I think that a lot of people, you know, it, it's almost synonymous with technology. Venture tech, venture tech. You know, do you do you agree with that, or or do you think that that's a, a false assumption? To go back, to <laughs> I sound repetitive, I guess. Um, <clears throat> the the other major asset class for venture would be in biotech, but everything that Fuse is focused on is early stage uh, software companies. Your your uh, Kellen Fuse focuses on you know technology, venture capital, not biotech, and so. I guess one of the questions is, you know, maybe, you know, I'm sure you're going to talk about, you know, I mean, you hear about autonomous vehicles, you hear about, um, you hear about AI, you hear about machine learning, you hear about, you know, what are the emerging themes 
that, that you guys are tracking now? And then maybe what ones are on the horizon that may be coming down the pike that people may be hearing about in a year or two? That's a great question. Uh, one funny dynamic that we're seeing over and over again is every single company claims that they do AI or ML, but it's our job to dive in under the hood of what that really means. And what we really look for, uh, we, we do love AI, we do love ML. Uh, we really look for the quantity and the quality of the data. How can you actually mine and use data to deliver business value to your customers? There's a couple companies in the Fuse portfolio that are doing exactly that. One is Wellstead Labs that my partner Cameron currently sits on the board of that uses text-to-speech uh, and human lifelike voices uh, using AI and ML. Uh, another company uh, called OWL that we've talked about earlier uses AI and machine learning to surface up real-time insights on what is a big indicator of fraud and what is not fraud. That's all done on the back end using artificial intelligence and machine learning where the product continues to get better because of the software on detecting bad actors. Another uh, interesting thing that we're paying close attention to is the number of software companies that are getting started and built uh, is at unprecedented levels. Therefore, the buyer has more options and more uh, companies to select from in choosing a product. Therefore, business models and pricing models have had to evolve to become more of a bottoms up versus a traditional enterprise sale. What hasn't kept up is the tooling and the workflow uh, for these companies to sell their software with this new adoption model. And so there's going to be uh, a, a, something similar to Salesforce uh, or another CRM company that is purpose-built for companies with product-led growth is the nomenclature that helps them understand product usage, the signal, and then how do they engage the sellers and the, the business team to increase those account sizes. So you just mentioned product-led growth, and, you know, that's, I'm sure, really interesting, you know, three really interesting words in, in your world. To the average person, what is product-led growth? Give us some examples. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we th throw around the, the, you know, CRM software or enterprise software. These are, these are nice big words, but what do they mean? So traditional enterprise software, you hire a, a massive field sales team, you sell to the CIO, you go through procurement. It's a big, heavy implementation. It's how traditional SaaS, i.e. Salesforce, uh, would sell their products. Now that there's way more companies getting started every single day, companies have had to evolve their product to make it what we call product-led growth or bottoms up. Many of us use Dropbox or Box. How do we get going with those products? We simply downloaded it. We started uploading our own files. We did it without talking to procurements, without talking to the CIO. We just did it ourselves. That is the best example of product-led growth. Slack is another great real-time example of, you know, your, your friends start using Slack. They invite you to join their Slack channel. Next thing you know, you're up and running on Slack, having never talked to anyone on whether or not you could buy. What's really interesting at these phases is uh, the pricing models are fairly low uh, to get going and below the kind of uh, company approval purchasing requirements. These developers or business users can easily swipe their credit card and immediately get value out of the product. That is where we're seeing a lot of the, the pricing and the consumption models of these early stage software companies going. And like I said, what hasn't kept up is the tooling in and around uh, to, to support the go-to-market motion and really understanding the analytics on how do you engage that said customer when you do send in the sales rep uh, by understanding the product uses and the product-led growth. 
That's interesting. I mean, you think about Dropbox, you're right. You know, most people have never met a single salesperson from Dropbox. You started using it and you didn't even, you didn't even care. You don't even know who makes Dropbox. Maybe it's Dropbox, maybe it's Microsoft. You don't even know, you don't care. You just consume the product. So I think that's a great example. Talk, you know, just a couple more things before we wrap up, but maybe talk a little bit about, you know, I think that a lot of people, I've heard the term, we're in a bubble being thrown around. And, you know, everybody thinks about the dot-com bubble that burst, you know, after, you know, the giant run-up in, in the late 1990s. And I think that there's a there's a contingent of people out there that think that what we're seeing in terms of, you know, the valuations that tech companies are, are you know, commanding, that, that we're entering into a, you know, almost a repeat or a clone of what we saw in the late 1990s. Do you agree with that totally? Do you disagree with that totally? Or is it somewhere in between? I mean, what do you say to the idea that, you know, we're in a tech-led bubble, the, you know, there's so much money chasing these companies and, and they're grossly overvalued. You know, I think I, you know, whether it's Airbnb, you, you know, you can, you name it. Um, but what do you say to that? Uh, when I joined Ignition in 2013, I heard the exact same thing over and over again, and that was eight years ago. And there will be a correction at some point, but uh, what is clear is the shareholder value creation continues to happen more and more in the private markets. This is why you're seeing the crossover hedge funds build out their early stage and growth stage venture capital practices because most of the shareholder value creation is now captured in the private markets. Uh, where we sit at the seed, pre-seed, and Series A investing, uh, we're not betting on the next two or three years. We're betting on the next 10 years. And if there is a correction, valuations at our stage aren't compressed as much, uh, nearly as much as they are at the later stages where they are penned uh, and pegged exactly to the private markets. And so as we are closely paying attention to valuations, uh, the amount of capital on the sidelines, at the stage that we play, we feel really good, particularly here in Seattle. Talk about the difference in terms of the quality of, of companies that are being started today in, in, the, in the startup world versus maybe 20 years ago. I wish I was. I was in middle school 20 years ago. So, um, uh, well, I can remind you, I can remind you that, you know, it was anybody with a PowerPoint and, and an idea would go public, right? And, and they'd raise a ton of money. There was no revenue. There was no business. And I think that, you know, that, that does lead to, you know, a comment that you could make in, in relation to something that you touched on, which is, you know, back then it was, can you, can you IPO? Can you IPO? Can you IPO? And now, you know, from a lot of the conversations I've had with, you know, successful software, you know, guys that run successful software firms is I don't want it. I don't necessarily want to go public. Going public is not necessarily the, um, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. A couple of comments on that front is you could go public back in the early 2000s if you had a mid hundreds of millions of, of, of market cap. Now analysts won't touch that category. Uh, you have to go public for $3 billion plus now to get the attention of the premier analyst in the analyst community. Second piece is it is now quicker, thanks to AWS, thanks to Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud, it is now significantly easier to get a product out the door. You don't need to go buy a bunch of server racks. You can spin up a, 
uh, a cloud instance and start building product uh, fairly quickly and easily. Uh, lastly, as you are seeing software not just sold to the IT sector, not just you know uh, traditional developer or servers or compute infrastructure, you are seeing software permeate every single industry, every single role in the world. Mark Andreessen uh, penned that famous post that software is eating the world. Well, it's true. One of the companies uh, that we backed is going right after McKesson and right after Cardinal Health by bringing peer pricing transparency and digitizing the uh, medical supplies uh, marketplace and ecosystem and supply chain with what they're doing. And they're seeing remarkable uptake from the customers and the suppliers into the platform. And so we're just seeing it over and over. More companies are getting started, but there's real meat, real business models and way different type of markets that these companies are going after today. You know, I think that the example that you gave with, with you know, the ease of starting a company um, in the sense of I don't need server racks. I can now, you know, you know, lease um, servers from, you know, Microsoft Azure or AWS as one one way that just kind of communicates how it's getting, I mean, I think it sounds like a weird, a weird thing to say, but it's getting easier and easier for new ideas to succeed than it ever has been. I mean, just I'll, I'll pick a maybe a, a real tangible example that I think a lot of people can relate to is when Redfin, which by the way, hasn't been as successful as I think that a lot of people predicted, but when Redfin came along, they basically said, we think it's a racket the way that homes are sold, the, you know, the commissions, all this stuff. So we're going to launch a website and we're going to allow people to sell their homes, post pictures of their homes and, and do all these things without the traditional old school way of doing it, which was hire an agent. They come in with a photographer, that person takes pictures. And, 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 and so what I guess I'm trying to say is technology really lowered the barriers to allow more competition. And I think, I think that that's just such a powerful concept, which is, because I think a lot of people come with the idea of everything that's intelligent or smart or interesting that's going to be invented has already been invented. And, and you hear that a lot, like, oh, there's not going to be another you know, Apple or there's not going to be another Amazon. It's already been done. But I, I think of it differently, which is, you know, the more technologies out there, the better it gets, the more ideas can can, you know, go from incubation to actually to birth. I would completely agree with that statement. It's also uh, with the cloud providers, again, Google Cloud, AWS, and Azure, enable software to be built anywhere around the world and delivered anywhere around the world, which is totally unlocking new opportunities and new markets as well. I mean, who would have ever thought that, you know, and I grew up on a, uh, in Montana, my mom grew up in a big farming family, wheat and barley, that there'd be a totally new mousetrap that's not pesticides or not human labor to weed weed these crops. And it's really a software enabled machine that is using lasers to zap weeds and therefore regenerate the soil and also much cheaper and much safer than pesticides. Who would have thought that that would be a unique market that now these cloud providers and software is, is reinventing? Yeah, it is. It is amazing. And I'm definitely in the camp of, of thinking that, um, you know, technology is going to continue to come up with wonderful innovation in ways that, you know, to your point that we can't even, you know, that seem beyond imagination today. Um, so, Kellen, I want to say, you know, this has been super interesting. Um, we're, we're very proud to be investors in your fund. 
Uh, we're rooting for you, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to come and, and share some of your knowledge, and maybe we'll have you back again. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler, for all your support. It's been an honor to work with you and your firm. Thanks, Kellen. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.